As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to Preconceived, where we examine the preconceptions that shape how we view the world and the paradigms by which we live our lives. Hey everybody, I'm Zale Mednick, and welcome to another episode of Preconceived. Pretty much as far back as ancient civilizations go, humankind has indulged in alcohol and other drugs. Yet despite humankind's long history of indulging in alcohol, there's still substantial stigma about getting drunk. And in many regards, for good reason, given the potential for substance abuse and addiction. Perhaps the preconception has come to be that alcohol, and in particular getting drunk, is a bad thing. A vice that we indulge in against our better judgment. But is alcohol and getting drunk really a bad thing? Or conversely, is alcohol actually a good thing in many regards? An essential ingredient that has propelled society forward and continues to do so. I am joined today by Edward Slingerland. Edward is a distinguished university scholar and professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia with adjunct appointments in psychology and Asian studies, as well as co-director of the Center for the Study of Human Evolution, Cognition, and Culture, and director of the Database of Religious History. Edward is the author of two trade books, Trying Not to Try and Drunk, as well as multiple academic books, translations, and edited volumes. His work has been featured in major media outlets, and he's done numerous interviews on TV, radio, blogs, and podcasts, including NPR, the BBC, PBS, CNN, the CBC, and the Joe Rogan Experience. Edward Slingerland, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Super excited to chat with you. I read this book a couple months ago, Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. And it was it was truly fantastic. And I'm not just saying that because you're on the podcast to say nice <laughs> things. I, I, I really, really, really enjoyed it. And it really reminded me of other books I've liked, like Sapiens and Homo Deus by Yuval Harari. It just it was a really interesting focused look on alcohol, but it mixed evolution, psychology, history, philosophy about so many different things. And I think you tackled it with such a complete different way. And I mean, my, my humble congratulations to you. Really, really enjoyable read. And I, I already had it on a newsletter a couple months ago as one of my book recommendations. So I, I loved it. Great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So you start off your book kind of 
talking about alcohol's role in evolution and the way people have tended to look at alcohol as part of evolution, more, more so as an evolutionary mistake than anything. What do you mean by that? And how did you then challenge that notion? So the standard story scientific account of why we have a taste for chemical intoxicants in general and, and alcohol in particular is that it's an evolutionary mistake. And there are two different types of evolutionary mistake. The, the dominant view has been that our taste for alcohol is a hijack, evolutionary hijack. So a hijack is when we figure out that we can tap into a reward network that evolved for completely other reasons but we just figure out you know, how to push the button and get that reward. And so that's the standard story is ethanol hits a reward circuit in our brain. There's no good reason why it should, it's just a mistake, but we figured this out. And so you know, we're like rats pushing a lever to get more cocaine delivered to their brains in these experiments, right? We figure it out and we just keep pushing that button. So, and there are things that we, vices that we indulge in that are classic evolutionary mistakes where this account makes a lot of sense. So the example I start with in the book is masturbation, right? We figure out how to, we get this amazing reward from evolution that's supposed to be for reproductive sex. It's supposed to be for getting our genes into the next generation. But humans and other animals have figured out a way to game the system and get that reward for you know, all sorts of wildly non-reproductive sexual hijinks. It's crucial to understand that evolution is not about perfection. Evolution's about good enough. And so this system of, you know, you get an orgasm in return for passing on your genes doesn't work perfectly, but it works well enough that it's maintained in sexually reproducing species, right? It's, it's You manage to do it often enough that evolution doesn't care what you're doing in your free time. So that's a case where there's an ancient hack that humans have, but it's not very costly. And so evolution's not that concerned with it. Another type of evolutionary mistake is what I call a mismatch. So this is where we have a, a reward network that evolved for actually adaptive reasons, but the world has changed in some way where it actually no longer is adaptive. And so the classic example of this is junk food. You know, we have a taste for fat and sugar. We have a tendency to, when we're presented with it, want to gorge on it. And this is very adaptive. So for most of our evolutionary history, getting enough fat and sugar has been a challenge. And so organisms that really you know, gobbled the stuff up when they could get it did well. It's not adaptive when we live in a modern industrial society and we can walk down to the 7-Eleven and get you know, a, a crate of Twinkies and sugary drinks and all the stuff that gives us diabetes and makes us overweight. So this is our taste for junk food is costly. It actually causes a lot of physiological harm, but it's very recent. So this is a recent development, this kind of basically infinite access to calories that we have now. And it's still geographically localized. So there are still plenty of places in the world where getting enough calories is a challenge for people. So this is a case where it's a costly mistake, but it's recent and geographically limited. And so... When I started to think about alcohol in this this framework, it doesn't fit into either category very well, because unlike masturbation, it's very costly physiologically. It's more like junk food in that regard. And yet it's an ancient uh, behavior. We've been doing it for as long as we've been doing anything. 
as a species and it's everywhere it's ubiquitous you see it in every culture throughout history and so this is what when i started to think about alcohol in an evolutionary framework i I came to feel that these standard mistake theories had to be wrong alcohol is so costly and so widespread and so ancient that there must be some some functional benefits that are paying for the costs so it's not just this mistake that we basically were able to beat the system. You're saying it doesn't really add up because of all the costs that alcohol can can levy to us. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that there are very good genetic and cultural solutions to the problem. So sometimes there's an evolutionary mistake that's costly, it's ancient, and evolution just can't fix it either because of path dependence. So sometimes, you know, evolution's made some set of choices and now it's stuck in that path. So the example I gave in the book is our our lower backs are really crappy. (laughs) We've been, and people have been having trouble with their lower backs, you know, forever because it's not the way you would design a bipedal organism if you had the luxury of doing it from the ground up. But evolution didn't have that luxury. It was stuck with the tree dwelling primate that it then had to slowly hack into an upright bipedal organism. So there it can't fix our backs because it got stuck with this, with basically decisions it made earlier that it couldn't undo. Sometimes it can't solve a problem just because the mutation that would fix it hasn't happened yet. You know, mutations are random. You can't just order up a mutation that you want. They happen randomly. But I point out that neither of these are the case in the the case of our taste for intoxication. So there are genetic mutations that have been around in the human genome for probably 10,000 years that actually make it unpleasant to drink alcohol. Uh, They're actually used, a a chemical that reproduces the function of this this mutation is used to treat alcoholism. It's so effective. And so there are solutions. And then, of course, culturally, the solution is prohibition. Just don't let people drink. And neither one of these solutions has taken off, which suggests that, you know, there's solutions in scare quotes. It's not really a serious problem. It's, It's actually, it's a feature, not a bug, that we have this taste for intoxicants. Which, which comes back ultimately to what you then propose, because you don't just, like any good book, you don't just say, I disagree with this theory that alcohol is popular because of this, but what is it that you ultimately posit is the reason why alcohol has persisted and become, not just become part of civilization, but in some regards even led to civilization? We're a weird, to understand the role of alcohol, you have to understand how weird we are as a species. So we're primates, but we live this lifestyle where we cooperate on this really large scales with complete strangers in very intensive ways that really look more, it looks more like social insects, the way we we cooperate. If you you see an army going into battle, it doesn't look like anything a chimpanzee would do. (laughs) Chimpanzees don't cooperate on that scale. It looks like a bunch of ants or bees engaged in a group activity. And so the, the puzzle is how do you get primates to act like social insects? And I think there's a couple different mechanisms that allowed us to make this transition. So essentially, how do we make the transition from small scale hunter gatherer societies, which is we're living on kind of the same scale as our primate relatives and our ancestors. How do we make that transition to that lifestyle into living in large scale societies? And, and I think there's a, 
religions, one of the things that allowed us to do that. So cultural inventions like religion, but also intoxication. So there's a series of both individual and group functions that alcohol performs that helps with create enhancing creativity, which allows us to innovate. We're completely dependent on tools. It allows us to overcome cooperation dilemmas, these challenges we face in kind of trusting other people and solving cooperation dilemmas. Alcohol plays a role in, in responding to all of these challenges. So you talk about social connection, that alcohol is huge for in the past, obviously, and in the present, just the pub has been known as this epicenter of social connection. Yeah. It's important for, for those kinds of communal settings. It's important just in one-on-one interactions like dating. Often people, they go for drinks and part of it yeah. is to loosen you up a little bit to improve your ability to to connect with other people, helps people with social anxiety, like you said, creativity and innovation. Um, a lot of that tends to hinge on the prefrontal cortex and alcohol's Mm -hmm. effect on that. Could you explain what the prefrontal cortex is and why alcohol's dampening of it is so critical? So the prefrontal cortex is kind of the villain in my book, (laughs) which is unfortunate. Which is interesting it's the villain because it's also a hugely important part of what makes our species so special. Yeah, it's crucial to being human. It's it's arguably the most important cognitive ability that we have as humans is is subserved by the prefrontal cortex. So our ability to delay gratification, our ability not be distracted, our ability to the way a cognitive scientist would put it, substitute a non-dominant reaction for a dominant one, which is basically just a kind of fancy way of saying it allows us to learn you know we're we're able to not just keep doing the same thing we could actually retrain ourselves into behaving in different ways the prefrontal cortex is crucial it's also the last part of a human to develop so way after you're completely physically mature sexually mature you still don't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex and that's interesting in and of itself so it suggests that and you're not talking from an evolutionary standpoint. You're talking like by the it takes until the age of about I think twenty five. Yeah, yeah. You're in your mid twenty. You're in your mid twenties, which yeah. is crazy. It's really late, and that itself suggests that um, again, you know, I'm using intentional language here just because it's faster. But evolution's a little bit worried about the prefrontal cortex. <laughs> it knows that we need it, but it definitely slow walks its development. And so the question is why. So what does the PFC interfere with that we we might want to be aware of? One thing it interferes with is our ability to think laterally. So the one way to think about the PFC is it gives us, allows us to focus on one task, but it also then is blinding us to other things that we could be noticing. And if you look at, you know, little kids who don't have PFCs yet, they're constantly distracted by stuff, right? You know, they start doing something and they notice a dog and then they notice something else. And, you know, when you're trying to get to daycare on time, it's really annoying, but it's, this is, this is what a human without a PFC is like. We're just flitting all over the place. One advantage of that though, is you can come up with new ideas or make new connections when your mind is, is flexible in that way. And so what I argue in the book is that evolution has this, this tension. We want to have a PFC but we also need to be creative. We also need to be receptive to cultural learning when we're young. So this is probably why it delays the development so long, because we have all this information we need to acquire from, from our 
fellow members of our culture in order to be successful. One of the, what would be best for us as humans is if we could have a PFC, be fully functioning adults, get to work on time, be able to control our impulses, but somehow recapture the kind of cognitive flexibility we had when we were four or five years old. And what I argue is one way to do that is to temporarily take the PFC offline or turn it down a little bit. And that's one of the main functions of alcohol. So one of the main things alcohol does is depress the functioning of the prefrontal cortex. And that in turn leads to an enhanced creativity. So I look at research that there's a little bit of direct research on this, so the direct effect of alcohol and creativity, but there's loads of indirect research on this, that depressing PFC function. You can also do it with a transcranial magnet. You can kind of zap somebody, zap their PFC and kind of take it offline for a little bit and they become more creative. But, you know, transcranial magnets are not our recent development. They're pretty expensive. It's easier to have a drink than get a transcranial <laughs> magnet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, just, it's more welcome at a party. So I argue that one thing that humans have figured out is that alcohol is a way to temporarily suppress the PFC in situations where you need insight. You need to see something new. Also, there's a historical component to the book, so I'm also looking at cultural history and cultural attitudes towards alcohol. And one thing you see around the world throughout history is this association with creative types, you know, poets, writers, artists, and alcohol and other intoxicants. And I argue that this is not a mistake. It's because people have always recognized that there's some, there's some way in which chemical intoxication helps us with this problem of creativity. And you give some examples that Google actually encourages alcohol at times for its employees. You talk about this, I'm not sure, the Balmer Peak or Balmer Peak? Yeah, the Balmer Peak, yeah, yeah. Which basic, do you want to just briefly explain the Balmer Peak? Yeah, so I was giving a talk. This is actually before I even started thinking about writing drunk. I was giving a talk about my previous trade book. It's called Try Not to Try. And it's about the state of spontaneity and how being spontaneous helps you with things like creativity. And I did mention this study that had just come out where getting people to about 0.08 BAC blood alcohol content enhanced their ability to solve these lateral thinking problems. And in the Q&A, this hand shot up and the first person who who asked the question was like, do you know about the Palmer Peak? (laughs) And I'd never heard of it before, but supposedly, and it may be apocryphal, Steve Ballmer, the, the former CEO of Microsoft, who was a legendary coder, supposedly discovered that his coding ability peaked at this very narrow blood alcohol content. So, you know, bad, 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 then suddenly he's a great coder, but then he gets too drunk, it goes down again. And so supposedly he kept himself hooked up to an alcohol IV to keep himself right at the right level of inebriation to code. And so they told me about the Balmer Peak, and then the first place they took me on my tour of the campus was their whiskey room. So when they are you know, working as a team and they're running into a problem that they can't solve, instead of staying at their computers and drinking more coffee and banging their head against the wall, they go to the whiskey room and they have this amazing collection of single malt scotch. I was very jealous. It's a really pretty impressive collection and, you know, a foosball table and some beanbag chairs and they go and they pour themselves a bit of scotch and they just chat and they find that, you know, that gentle down regulating of the PFC, um, 
it's not only enhancing individual creativity, it's allowing you to communicate ideas with others more freely. So maybe I have an idea that is kind of weird, or maybe I think is I'm embarrassed about because it might be stupid. I'm not going to share that idea if I'm sober. If I've had a finger of scotch, I might blurt it out. And so it's alcohol is not only ramping up individual creativity, it's also by down-regulating our inhibitions, it's making us more exchange information more freely than we would otherwise. And I, I think that's so fascinating, this idea that it's important maybe to be a little bit less inhibited and to maybe lose a little bit of the control we have. And there's a couple of quotes I just want to read that struck me from your book. You wrote in, in regards to the importance of shutting off the prefrontal cortex, the PFC, you say, because of the distinctive adaptive challenges we face as a species, we require a way to inject controlled doses of chaos into our lives. And then you also argue that it's important to shut off our consciousness. You cite Tolstoy in that, and, and that alcohol helps temporarily rid us of the curse of self, which was by Mark Leary. And a lot of people, I think, would be surprised at that. And when I was reading it, I it resonated with me for sure. But I was also thinking it's strange in a way that we have evolved to have these prefrontal cortexes without a mechanism built into us that does dampen it. Or is that suggestive of the fact that maybe we shouldn't need to turn off our prefrontal cortexes so much since that is how our brains have adapted? Yeah, I think the crucial thing is to realize that we're cultural animals. So to talk about humans outside of the context of cultural technologies doesn't make any sense. We've biologically, we're so dependent, for instance, on fire that we can't live on raw food anymore. Our digestive tracts have changed, our jaws aren't as powerful, our teeth are different. We've, we've adapted to eating cooked food. And cooked food isn't something a baby's born, you know, baby's not born knowing how to make fire. You have to learn this from your culture. It's something that's acquired. So humans live in an ecosystem that's partially artificial, that involves technologies that we've invented. So I think that part of the human ecosystem is chemical intoxicants. <laughs> it's these, these substances that because of the dual nature of the PFC, it's crucial for success, but we need to tamp it down in certain situations. We, we have these cultural technologies for doing it. And there are other ways to do it too. You can do it through extreme exercise. You can do it through sleep deprivation, extreme pain. There are various ways to kind of depress the PFC that don't involve chemical intoxicants. But chemical intoxicants are the fastest and most convenient way to do it. And so I really think we've co-evolved in a situation that's involved chemical intoxicants because it's, they're a crucial part of our ecosystem. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You also, the book is called Drunk. Obviously, you. Yeah. yeah. So I think what people would find interesting and maybe surprising is that, and, and you're not advocating for people to get trashed all the time and do stupid things, which you talk about in the full chapter, which we, we might not get to, but you, you obviously talk about the negatives of alcohol and we might touch on that a bit. But this idea that you're not always necessarily talking about just a glass of wine at the end of the day. You're also, it, it seems to me reading the book, suggesting that there's a benefit to sometimes getting a little bit drunk, maybe beyond the point where it's safe to drive, which isn't necessarily a super high blood alcohol level, but high enough that it's advocating that the idea of having enough alcohol to be inebriated to a certain point where you really do lose that inhibition. And I think that would surprise people. Are you talking in this book more so about just alcohol in general, or are, is there a component of what you're saying related to the benefits specifically of getting to the point where you'd be considered drunk? Yeah, no, it is. And so most of the benefits that I talk about in the book tend to kick in at about 0.08 blood alcohol content. So that's like two glasses of wine for most people. Of course, it you know depends on your tolerance and if you're eating food and things like that. So yeah, it's it's getting not just having a glass of wine to help digest your food and um you know cut your cholesterol it's enough alcohol to have an effect on your pre prefrontal cortex enough to to make you a little bit more open a little bit less self-controlled the other function that alcohol is having the, the two main ones are the depression of the pfc but it's also simultaneously boosting serotonin endorphins these other chemicals that make us feel good, they make us more open to others, they make us like other people more, they're pro-social chemicals. So it's, it's not only making us less inhibited and less focused, it's making us more open to others in a kind of emotional sense, in a, in a bonding sense. So, and these, the, these two effects really don't happen until you start to get to about 0.08. I do briefly mention kind of going way past 0.08. So there, there does seem to be a, a function for occasional severe associations from reality. So the kind you get very high BACs or with psychedelics. So I talk a little bit about psychedelics, but this is a difficult topic to talk about because when you get to that level of inebriation, alcohol can become quite dangerous. And psychedelics dissociate you so much from reality that without some guidance, it can be really dangerous as well. So the, the book is mostly focused on that sweet, the sweet spot of about 0.08 BA. But there does seem to be functions for occasionally really altering yourself in a way that can bond you intensely with others and also serve as kind of almost like hazing rituals do. This kind of when people sometimes use, I talk about this Navy SEAL commander who after training would take everyone out and get them 
quite drunk, way past 0.08 at a bar as a way of bonding them. But also, I think at that level of drinking, there's also a kind of hazing function. I'm. We all know we're going to be hurting tomorrow, and yet we're willing to do it because we're a team, you know, and we, we're willing to accept pain for the good of the group. So there's, th- there's that in the mix as well. But I think the real, the main functions that I'm talking about happen at that, that two drink level of inebriation. What's ironic, and I guess it's maybe ironic's the wrong word because there are obvious negatives about alcohol in terms of addiction, alcoholism, abuse, all those things that we, we, we know about. But there is a bit of an irony in that you've just mentioned the creativity, the bonding, the friendships, a lot of really positive things about alcohol, which I, I imagine to an extent have been drowned out in the story of humanity or where we currently are because of all the negatives of it. And it has raised a lot of, there's a lot of moral questions, which you address in the book embedded about alcohol. And I, I want to explore some of those moral moral questions. You talk about how it, people just enjoy alcohol. It's pleasurable. And mm. maybe there's nothing wrong with a degree of hedonism in our lives, but perhaps pleasure for pleasure's sake has been overly stigmatized and vilified. How do you view that? Yeah, there's a bit of an irony in the book in the sense that if you want to look at it this way, I talk about diet. I use the the uh, dichotomy between Apollo and Dionysus. I think it's a helpful mythological framework for thinking about alcohol. The irony of the book is that for most of the book, I'm defending Dionysus in an Apollonian way, right? I'm, I'm making practical arguments about functional arguments about why alcohol has this role to play in human life. And from an evolutionary perspective, that's the kind of story you have to tell. Because evolution doesn't care about our pleasure. Evolution doesn't want us to be happy. It it couldn't care less whether or not we're happy. Evolution just wants us to get copies of our genes into the next generation. And so the answer to why do we like to drink can't be it makes us feel good. Because evolution doesn't care about us feeling good. There's lots of things that we experience that are not good at all, but they're functional. But at the end of the book, I, I point out that we're not our genes we as human beings care about our happiness. We as human beings care about pleasure. And there is one of the reasons I think we've, our discourse around alcohol has been stunted, I think. We, in public policy circles, even if you look at the scientific research on alcohol, it's all about harm reduction. It's all through a purely medicalized lens and i think part of that reason and then in religious studies and cultural history there's this neglect of alcohol almost kind of bizarrely deliberate ignoring of the role of alcohol in human life that i that i call kind of neo-puritanism there's this weird discomfort we have with talking about substances that give us pleasure or pleasure in general and i think that's that's one of the causes of these blind spots that we've had when we talk about alcohol so at the very end of the book i say look i've made this this functional argument for why alcohol should have a role in our lives and then on top of all that it the fact that it makes us feel good should matter <laughs> like pleasure should should be an important thing we consider as well but yeah it's i I'm making a functional argument, which you have to do from an evolutionary perspective, 
but I also want, want us to be able to pan out and just look at what makes for a good human life. I love the I love the way you just said that so so boldly that evolution doesn't care how we feel and it doesn't no, it, it cares no. how we function but like you said and as you outlined at the end of your book and just just commented there that doesn't necessarily matter that doesn't mean we are not evolution we are not just our genes it yeah. doesn't mean we can't also appreciate enjoyment or something because it does give us pleasure yeah when I was when I was growing up one of the messages from society at large was kind of that about alcohol this notion that it's an easy way out sometimes. I guess something that ultimately took shape in my mind was this notion that I shouldn't need to rely on alcohol or now that I read your book, shutting down my pre my prefrontal cortex in order to be in certain social situations. Take the creativity side out of it. But for example, I mentioned going on a date before. I should yeah. be able to connect with somebody without needing alcohol. I should be able to go out. And even though I might have a little bit of social anxiety, I should be able to learn how to deal with that without using alcohol as a way to better immerse myself in a social situation. Yeah. Would you say, I mean, I think everything has a balance and your book is balanced, but would you say that that frame of thought is a bit too hard on us as humanity and that there's nothing wrong to say, well, no, you don't always have to be so strong and, it's okay to rely on alcohol sometimes to help you in a social situation. And that's not a sign of weakness. That's just the way we are. Yeah. I, I address this at the end of the book as well, that it's what well, we don't see lurking there because it's so a part of human cognition is how that attitude you just articulated is based on mind body dualism, right? if who you really are is your mind, and if you are really gonna do well in a date or in a social situation, you should be able to, with your own mind, make yourself relaxed or make yourself charming. And if you're having to rely on a chemical to do it, there's something wrong with you or you're not, you know, you're using a crutch. The problem with that view is it misses the fact that it's all chemicals all the way down <laughs> you know there's no it's not like there's a magic ghost in there that's that's you know exerting libertarian free will and making you relaxed on a date it's all chemicals there's food there's the weather i mean all of these physical things are affecting you so i think we've got to get out of that mind-body dualism a bit even though we can't help thinking that way and see that you know humans have evolved to use these tools fire is not a crutch and to say to someone you know rely on yourself don't cook your food why are you so weak that you need cooked food you know go out and eat raw food it's absurd we're because fire is part of our species it's part of the ecosystem that we've always lived in and so is ritual and so is chemical intoxication so as long as you see it so part of the point of drunk is to lay out what the functions of alcohol have historically been so that people can make intelligent decisions about how the, how and when they would use it in their own lives i think and i think that we we kind of intuitively know about these functions i think a lot of people just intuitively know that hey if you know i want this date to go well we should have a glass of wine instead of drink a bunch of coffee but we don't know why and, and because we don't know why, we're inarticulate about the ways we use alcohol, and we don't think about it very clearly. So what I'm hoping to do is give people the tools to 
say, okay, here's, here's the function that alcohol has historically played for us as a species. Here are the types of situations where it can be useful. Do I want to use it? especially considering all the downsides. And so, you know, the last chapter of the book is about what I call the dark side of Dionysus, the fact that alcohol is a super dangerous substance. It's it's really bad for you physically. It's almost certainly a physiological negative thing to use alcohol. From a purely medical perspective, you should never drink. It also is one of the worst things about alcohol is how addictive it is. It's really physically addictive. And it's possible that up to 15% of the human population is genetically predisposed to alcoholism, has trouble drinking safely. So it's a really dangerous substance. And as you alluded to earlier, um, I argue that it's gotten more dangerous recently. So the advent of distilled liquors, which are way more powerful than anything we had access to in our evolutionary history, that's a, that's a sea change in terms of the dangerousness of alcohol. You can, historically, we've t- typically been taking alcohol in the form of weak, relatively weak beers and fruit wines that clocked in, beers historically probably clocked in at about 2 to 3% ABV, alcohol by volume. You can drink a 2% ABV beer all day and never get beyond 0.08. So it's kind of built-in safety feature. Alcohol has come with this built-in safety feature for most of our history, but then we figure out a way to disable the safety feature, which is distillation. So pulling the alcohol off and concentrating it so you can get like 90 something percent ABV vodkas and really, really powerful liquors. And even though it's still just ethanol, they're so much more concentrated. I think we should think about them as a different drug entirely. That to me was maybe the most interesting part of the book, how you highlight how for 9,000 plus years, alcohol was kind of mostly limited to beer and wine. You could sip on it. It was different the way we had it in social settings. Whereas since distillation was, I think, in the 13th century in China and then the 16th to 18th century in Europe, so relatively new, that yeah. really changed the way you can consume alcohol. And even when people think back to maybe their college days, usually people are drinking to get drunk and you can do it pretty quickly because you buy vodka, you buy scotch, whatever. And this is new. This is a fairly new thing relative to our ability to get drunk over a slower period. And this is a more dangerous way because of the ability to get drunk more quickly alone just with yeah yeah so the two the two developments in modern life are the access to this really dangerous new form of alcohol and then so i call that distillation the distillation problem and then the other problem is isolation so the fact that more and more we have private access to alcohol which is historically unprecedented in in any type of traditional culture you didn't have private access to alcohol. If you were consuming alcohol, it was in a public setting where you were with other people, you were eating food, typically you're engaging in rituals. And the this is the other safety feature that alcohol came with is that its consumption was always social and it was always surrounded with various formal and informal rules about how much you were allowed to drink, how quickly you could drink when you needed to stop drinking. Once I can go to a drive through liquor store and have them put a case of vodka in the back of my SUV and drive it to my house and just have access to it, all those safety features have been disabled. I'm now alone with a super dangerous substance without any of the kind of social support 
that historically we've relied on to to keep our drinking in check. You know, we see this in the pandemic in a way. Pandemic lockdowns were a really interesting experiment, natural experiment. You would never get human subject approval to do this, but it happened anyway, (laughs) where you just told people you're not allowed to leave your house or interact with anyone, but you can have as much alcohol as you want. And your alcohol stores are going to stay open too. Yeah, absolutely. Essential service, right? Problem drinking really went through the roof during the pandemic. People's drinking became very unhealthy. And I think it's exactly what you would predict given our history as a species. We're not really designed to, as individuals, control our alcohol consumption. We need help. We need social help. And that's where things like pubs and, you know, meals with families and and the the traditional type of drinking in public with other people provides us with those controls. You spoke briefly before about hallucinogenics, and obviously your book is focused mainly on alcohol, but you do talk about some other drugs. What is so unique about alcohol, aside from aside from the fact that it's legal? Uh, yeah. It hasn't always been. You mentioned prohibition too. But aside that it's legal, what is so unique about it that makes it... I don't want to say the drug of choice because that's suggesting that it should be the drug of choice. Um, No, but I call it the the king of intoxicants, right? There's a reason that it is the dominant form of intoxicant because we've had other stuff. We've had cannabis for a really long time. We've had various types of psychedelics for a very long time, but they've never replaced alcohol. And that's because I think if you gave a group of cultural engineers a task and you were like, this is what we need. We need something that can be made anywhere out of almost anything. It's easy to discover. It's easy to make. It's going to have very predictable effects across individuals. It's going to be easy to dose. It's going to have a short half-life. It's going to get cleared from our body-brain systems very quickly so that it, you know, we can enjoy the effects of it, but then it goes away. This is alcohol. <laughs> like it really, no other drug has all those features. So cannabis has some of the same effects. It depresses the PFC, it boosts some of the feel-good hormones, but it, it has very variable effects across individuals. So I've tried now every type of cannabis imaginable. This strain, that strain, different delivery mechanisms. Cannabis when I smoke or consume cannabis, I get super paranoid and then I fall asleep. There's like no point in which it's good. And, you know, other people smoke and want to go dancing or talk about philosophy or so it just cannabis has wildly different cognitive effects across individuals. So that makes it a not very useful social drug. It's also hard to dose. So if you're smoking it, you have to know how to hold the smoke. Um, If you're doing edibles, the, the delay between consumption and cognitive effect is so long that it's notoriously hard to dose edibles. You know, you have some and nothing's happening. So you take some more and then suddenly you realize you took way too much. Alcohol tells you right away if you've had the right amount. It affects you very quickly, gets cleared from your body very quickly. The other thing about cannabis is it's not physically addictive and it's probably physiologically a lot less harmful than alcohol. And the same thing is true of psychedelics. But again, psychedelics are just not very good social drugs. You, they are so long-lasting, and they disassociate you from reality in such a powerful way 
that they can't be used the way alcohol is used. You're never going to have people, you know, at the end of a work day meeting colleagues and dropping acid right before they go home, right? It just you can't. It doesn't function that way. So in in cultures that use psychedelics, they're used in a very different way than alcohol. They're either only used by a certain class of people. So sometimes there's a class of priests or shaman who are their job essentially is to use psychedelics and gain insights into things and share those with their culture. Or in some cultures where everyone does it, it's done very rarely. It's something you do once or twice a year in a very controlled ceremony. So, so alcohol just has a set of features that make it ideal for homo sapiens to use as a social lubricant. Yeah, kind of this reliability and predictability of it, especially in terms of dosing. So to finish to finish off, I mean, I got so much from your book. Just a lot of it was philosophical takeaways and my perspective on drugs, alcohol, whether in moderation or getting drunk. And again, I want to emphasize to people, it, this is not encouraging by any means an abusive, abusive alcohol. But for you, beyond the philosophical takeaway, is there is there a practical takeaway? And there doesn't need to be. Um, but is there a practical takeaway that you hope people leave this book with or that you left with following your experience writing this book and researching this topic? Beware of distilled liquors. <laughs> That's one takeaway. And that was surprising to me. So I was, I think most people assume we've kind of always had distilled liquor. I was I shocked have. really at how recent an invention it is. And so I, one practical I impact that writing this book has had on me is that I drink, I, I less frequently drink distilled liquors now. I'm more wary of them. I actually have started drinking beer occasionally, which I never did before. And I still don't entirely like beer, I have to say. <laughs> I still do, more nor do wine I, for one. But, you know, beer and, you know, the beer industry is very happy to have me come and, and share this with them. But it's true. It's what my research led me to is beer is actually the best ethanol delivery system just because it's weaker you know it tends to be lower abv and especially if you're drinking you know a session ale one of these you know the craft beer industry kind of went this crazy abv push where they're trying to make triple ipas and make them stronger and stronger and there's been a bit of a reaction to that people saying no we just want something that we can sip with our friends and so beer is safer socially than, than even wine and definitely distilled liquors. And so that that's one takeaway. I think the other one is just the realizing how important it is to drink with other people and not drink alone. So we, I don't think we are consciously, in, in a modern environment, we tend not to have the kind of formal rituals that the Greeks had or the Chinese have had around banquets and things like that. But just, I think, recognizing that if you're only drinking when you're out of the pub, your friends are helping you. You're ordering in rounds, and so that controls the pace of your drinking. Ideally, the you know bartender or cocktail server is keeping an eye on you and if you're drinking a little bit too fast they're gonna not make eye contact <laughs> you know pass by your table it's there are all these ways we have of controlling each other's drinking in a way that that we need we really depend on and and that so it becomes very dangerous if we're drinking in a context where we're, we're completely alone or we're lacking that social feedback and so that's that's another main so the two main takeaways i think would be Beware of distilled liquors and don't drink alone. 
the, the beer industry loves you if they're listening to yeah they do yes yeah conveniently yeah well th th those are great takeaways and edward slingerland thank you so so much for joining me and spending this time congratulations on your book drunk where can people learn more about it i mean it's, it's widely available on the internet if you just Google drunk Edward Slingerland, but yeah. any, any place you want to direct people. My website's edwardslingerland.com. So that has, you know, reviews, interviews about drunk and information about my other books. But yeah, yeah, you can find it anywhere. In fact, now it books I, for the first time in airport bookstores. Have yeah, the paperback, wow. So that's nice. <laughs> that, must feel, that must feel pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty well, cool. Well, congratulations. And uh, I will put that link in the episode notes. And thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Preconceived. Go have a glass of beer. Have a great day. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.